Well, welcome to our final sermon in our sprint through the book of Revelation. I hope you've learned a little bit about the context and the unique beauty and hope found in apocalyptic literature and in this final book of the Bible. Now, so many of you have been bold and you've asked great questions, uh, which have been really helpful in shaping this sermon series. I'm thankful for each of you that wrote something, uh, that reached out, and I hope that I've done your questions justice. I want to end with one question I received that I think is universal for all of us. It says this, I get what you're saying about God's kingdom being here on earth, uh, but I'm having a hard time grasping where those who died have gone. Are they in heaven? And if so, where's that? I love this question. So let's talk about heaven and life and death and eternity, and let's do it in about 21 minutes. Now, there's a lot of heady theology. Uh, there's a lot of debates we could get into. I'm going to just touch on uh, those areas so that we can talk about the heart of the question. Because losing someone is one of the most universal and painful of human experiences. I'm guessing that at some point in your life, you've lost someone. Today, I'm mourning Mr. Davis. He was one of my favorite teachers from high school, and, and he passed away last week. He was not only an instructor, but a mentor and a coach. Later in life, I would say a friend. He offered good advice, often on bad sermons. And so when I think about what happens when we die, it's not just a theory question. He's what I'm thinking of when I'm preaching this. Who's yours? Maybe a friend or a neighbor, a family member? Maybe just someone that uh, you're aware of, some public figure, maybe someone really close to your heart. This could be a question that you wrestle with, not for others, but for yourself. Maybe you've started to take seriously that our bodies wear out and break down eventually. So what happens when we die? What happens to each of us when our time is up? There's a lot of theories that we could hit here. There's a lot of ideas, both outside of Christianity and within our own Christian traditions. If you grew up evangelical, you might think it's about um, heaven and hell and how do we go to one and not the other. And, and that's a fair question, but that's not all we're going to today. If you grew up Catholic, you might think about traditions like praying to the saints and purgatory. Certain pop culture traditions, uh, we're wearing robes and we're floating on clouds and playing harps. I, I'm not too excited about that last one. I don't think that if I'm floating on a cloud that um, robes seem a little breezy, don't they? There's lots of beliefs that try to fill in the cracks of our tradition, uh, the places that scripture doesn't talk about. But I'm gonna focus on scripture today because scripture is the primary place we look for understanding things outside of our human experience. And so I'm gonna focus on that. Now, our scripture is, is Revelation 20 and I'm starting in verse 12. It reads like this. I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne, the scrolls were open, another scroll was open too. This is the scroll of life, and the dead were judged on the basis of what was written in the scrolls, but what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them, and people were judged by what they had done. This is a scene of the last judgment. All the people who have died before this moment in history come before Jesus, and they're judged on that. But if that judgment comes at some point in the future, and, and people have been dying for as long as people have been living, What's happening until then? Where do people go between the moment of their death and that final judgment, whether that's a five minute difference or, or 5,000 years? The scripture gives us uh, some hints, uh, not necessarily in the book of Revelation. One picture is called soul sleep. Think of it like suspended animation or you know every space travel movie where someone is cryogenically frozen and they wake up later once it's over. 
This idea seems to come from the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul talked about death like going to sleep. Now, I don't think that Paul meant to be taken literally on that front. I think he was pointing out that the dead people get back up at some point in the future. But some people believe that we, we die and then we go to sleep until the last judgment. Actually, I think most early Christians believe something different. And Jesus himself taught on it. That when you die, you go to this place called the realm of the dead or Sheol. You've probably heard that word before if you've read the Psalms. It was a holding place for those who had died. And by the time of Jesus, they believed there were like two compartments within Sheol. There was Hades, uh, which was the realm of the dead who had sometimes rejected God. And there was paradise, a place of comfort. And Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe you've heard the story before. The rich man ignores Lazarus and doesn't care for his needs and then both die. And the rich man goes to Hades and he can see across a chasm Lazarus. And Lazarus is in Abraham's embrace, this place of consolation. As they both wait the last judgment, Lazarus is being comforted. Now that's a parable. I don't think that we're meant to take it too literally. And all the details, it's about, you know, how do we treat people in this life? But it does give you a sense of how Jesus' first listeners understood what we call happening until the last judgment, until that new heaven and the new earth, that, that some of us, that those who are found in Christ, will be in a place of consolation and hope. They'll be comforted. All right. So that's what happens between death now and last judgment. But let's pick our scripture back up. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 14. The death and the grave were thrown into the fiery lake. This is the fiery lake, the second death. Anyone whose name wasn't found written in the scroll of life was thrown into that fiery lake. Pause, because that's about hell. There's a total of three sentences here on hell. Friends, there are, I think, more movies in the Hellraiser franchise than there are sentences about hell in this book, and we blow that out of context. So let me give you a correspondingly appropriate length sermon about hell. It's gonna be five longish sentences. First, most of what we know about hell in pop culture Christianity, the really graphic, violent descriptions, comes from Dante's Inferno, John Milton's Paradise Lost, little basis in the Bible, about as theologically accurate as a Hollywood movie. Second, I believe in hell because I believe in free will and you have to have some place to choose. If it's not heaven, God's not going to force you to love him. Three, John Wesley also believed in hell but described it as the experience of loss, beauty and goodness and all the good things created by God. Four, if Jesus is right, there are fewer people in hell than you and I might be comfortable with and we might not agree on the list of who gets in and that's okay because God's not asking for our permission to save people. Five, stop consigning people to hell. That's not what Christians do. It's the opposite. Friends, we make a big deal out of hell, but the Bible doesn't. It comes up there and it's a reality, but it's not the focus. So what's the alternative? Flip back to verse 12. Scrolls are open. Uh, and one of the scrolls is all the stuff that you've done, but there's another scroll that's open and that's important too. The first scroll are our actions. Those matter, but what really matters more is the scroll of life, the work of Jesus, and as, as Christians, we believe that what Jesus did was bigger than anything we could do, good or bad. Jesus' most famous teaching, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, your scroll, your actions matter. And Jesus wins. So what does that look like? What is this new heaven and new earth after the final judgment? It reads like this, uh, Then I saw the new heaven, the new earth, the former heaven, and the former earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. Then one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. He said, write these down for these words are trustworthy and true. Making all things new, all things for you, for me. It might not happen today, but it will happen someday. Making all things new. For that person whose face comes to mind when you remember with mourning, when you think about grief and loss, all things new. All things for all people who have and are and ever will be. All things new. The book of Revelation ends with this. The entire Bible ends with this. This picture of comfort and hope, a great reunion of all of those we've lost and mourned, but better than that, a reunion that will not end because death and the grave and hatred and exhaustion and all of that junk in the world passes away and creation is restored to this picture of what God built to begin with, God's presence in paradise here on earth. So I don't know who you pictured in this sermon, but I believe it's not the last time that you're gonna see their face. And until then, we long for that day and we rest in the belief that they are in God's comfort until then. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are making all things new. God, we thank you that, that you are providing a place of comfort for us when our lives here are complete, uh, that we don't have to fear even, even the eternity, even the finality, even the pain of death. And so, God, we, we ask that you would comfort those that we love, that you would hold them close until we see them again. God, we ask that when our time is complete, that we might be with you. God, we thank you that, that when the final judgment comes, God, that, that our life matters and, and our actions matter and our scroll matters, God, but the thing that matters more is the work of Jesus. But the thing that matters most is the life and death and life-giving power of Jesus. And so, God, I ask that, that you would be with all of us here, that we might experience that life, that our lives might be founded in you, that, God, for those who are not sure what that means, they might reach out and ask questions, that, God, those who are ready might make new decisions, but, God, for all of us, that our lives might be defined by you, now and at the very last day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.